Let's open our Bibles together at this time to the book of Acts and the 15th chapter. Acts 15 and verse 1 for our message in the Word of God this morning. Acts 15.1 will be found located on page 1169 in the Church Bible. Today's date is November 13th, 2022. Today's text will be in Acts 15 verses 1 through 11. And the title of this morning's message is Paul's message is officially reviewed. The Apostle Paul's message is officially reviewed. And we begin with the story of a man who went to court to get a divorce one day. And the judge said to him, I have reviewed your case very carefully, and I've decided to give your wife $800 a week. And the man said, well, that's very fair, Your Honor. And you know what? Every once in a while, I'll try to send her a couple of bucks myself. I think maybe he misunderstood what the judge was saying. But speaking of reviewing things, here in Acts 15, the message of the Apostle Paul is going to be officially reviewed by the saved Jews in the Jewish church at Jerusalem, the church that the Lord himself started when he was here on the earth, the one that he put the twelve apostles in charge of before he left the earth and ascended into heaven. And Acts 15 is the story of how that review went down. It begins in Acts 15 and verse 1, where we read these words. And certain men came down, which came down from Judea, taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, just so you know what's going on here, by this time in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul has been out preaching to Gentiles for 13 years, telling them, that they could be saved without circumcision. And as you can see there in verse 1, that got the attention of some Jews who attended the Jewish church in Jerusalem. And they came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, 
where Paul's new Gentile church was located, and they started telling those Gentiles that they did have to be circumcised to be saved. And it's not hard to figure out why they did that. It was because they knew that's what the law of Moses said. What they didn't know is that God had made a dispensational change from law to grace with the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So those men probably meant well in standing for the only truth that they knew, but when they started making Paul's new converts think they weren't saved because they weren't circumcised, they were walking on the fighting side of Paul, as we see in verse 2 of our text, Acts 15 and verse 2. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with those guys, in other words, they had a great big dissension and a whole lot of disputation with those guys, those guys determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And as we're going to see in a minute, Paul agreed to go. So here we have to ask, why would Paul let those men send him to ask the twelve apostles about his message if the Lord himself is the one who gave him his new message? I mean, why didn't he just tell those guys, (laughs) nuts to you, the Lord Jesus Christ himself sent me to preach grace so you guys could take a hike and go fly a kite. (laughs) And the answer to that question of why he let them send him is that Paul didn't go to Jerusalem because those men told him to go. He went because the Lord told him to go. Now, I know it doesn't say that here in Acts 15, but look in your first reference at what Paul later told the Galatians. In Galatians 2, 1 and 2, he told them, speaking of this same event here, I went up to Jerusalem by revelation. Now, that word revelation is the noun form of the verb to reveal. And that means Paul went to Jerusalem because the Lord had revealed to him that he wanted Paul to go to Jerusalem. And we know why the Lord sent him to Jerusalem. Because in your next reference... Paul went on to tell the Galatians in Galatians 2.2, I went up by revelation and communicated unto them, the twelve apostles and those elders, that gospel, the gospel of grace, which I preach among the Gentiles. 
God sent Paul to Jerusalem to tell that Jewish kingdom church about this new gospel of grace. He'd been out preaching to the Gentiles so that they could review it and give their stamp of approval on his new message. You say, well, why would he need that? If the Lord sent him to preach grace, why would he need the approval of the church in Jerusalem on his message? Well, what you're seeing there, folks, is the respect that the Lord had for the Jewish church that he'd established when he was here. Listen, he was not about to start a new church without telling his old church about it. So, as we see, as we read on, Paul and Barnabas packed their bags and headed for the showdown at the Jerusalem Corral. <laughs> Joanne will like to hear that. She listens to the uh, recordings because she's now been to the OK Corral in Tombstone, Arizona. Anybody else ever been there? I've been there when I was a young guy many, many years ago when my sister was going to school out there. By the way, she since she's listening, let's all say hi to her. One, two, three. Hi, Joanne. Oh, we can do better than that. One, two, three. Hi, Joanne. There you go. She'll like that. <laughs> Okay, after Paul and Barnabas packed their bags, it says in verse 3, and being brought on their way by the church in Antioch, the Grace Church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy unto all the brethren. Now, in the beginning of verse 3 there, that, that business of being brought on their way, that means as Paul and Barnabas were leaving, the church walked alongside them because they hated to see them go. You see an example of that in Acts 21, 4 and 5. Paul says, or Luke says, that finding disciples... We tarried there seven days. And when we departed and went our way, they all brought us on our way with wives and children till we were out of the city and we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. And, and you know how that is. When someone you love is visiting you and, and they go to leave, well, you walk them to the door, and then if it's cold out, you put on a coat and you walk them to their car because you because you hate to see them go. And when Paul went to leave his home church here, they brought him on his way. They too hated to see him go. But now look at verse three again, because those brethren in verse three in Phoenicia and Samaria. The ones who were happy to hear about the conversion of the Gentiles? Those guys were Jewish brethren. Jewish brethren who believed and got saved back when some preachers did what you read about there in Acts 11.19. They traveled as far as 
Phoenici, preaching the word to none but the Jews only. Well, hey, if they preach to Jews, then those brethren would be Jewish believers, right? <laughs> and so were the ones in Samaria, as you see in your next reference. In Acts 8, 5, and 6, Philip went down to the city of Samaria, which was located in the region of Samaria, and preached Christ to them. And they believed it. The people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spoke. So those Samaritans were also Jewish kingdom saints. Now, the reason... God is telling us about that in verse 3, how they, they rejoiced to see the Gentiles saved. It's to show you that your, your average Joe Jew, not your average Joe, your average Joe Jew <laughs> rejoiced when they heard that, that, that God was now saving Gentiles uh, and, and, and with, without making them getting circumcised especially. But the question was, would the leaders in Israel rejoice to hear about it? It's kind of like what you read here in Mark 12, 37 and 38, about the Lord Jesus. The common people heard him gladly. And he said to them, beware of the scribes. The average Joju in the Lord's day loved what he was teaching. But the problem was the scribes and the other leaders in Israel, they didn't love what he was teaching so much. And that might happen here to Paul as well. Now, I know that the leaders that Paul was going to see were saved. Unlike the scribes, the twelve apostles were believers. But I don't think I have to tell you, even believers don't always like dispensational changes. As you know, if, if you've ever tried to tell a believer about dispensational changes, a lot of times they don't want to hear it. So let's read on and see how the leaders in Jerusalem liked this dispensational change in verse 4. In verse 4 it says, When they were come to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas, they were received of the church, the Jewish kingdom church, and of the apostles and elders. And Paul and Barnabas declared all things that God had done with them. Well, as you can see... So far, things are off to a pretty good start. I mean, the church at least received them and let them present their case and, and declare what God had been doing with them among the Gentiles. But, and you knew there was a but coming. <laughs> it says in verse 5, But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. 
Now, I know normally when we think of Pharisees, we think of unsaved men, right? They were so steeped in religion and religious traditions that it was hard for them to get saved. So most of the time when you read about them, they were opposing the Lord. But not even Pharisees are beyond the power of God to save. And God saved these Pharisees. But while they might have been saved, they didn't know about the new message of grace God gave Paul. So they stood by God's old message of the law. And under the law of Moses, Gentiles not only had to be circumcised to be saved, they had to keep the rest of the law too, as those Pharisees point out there in verse 5. You see, Paul says in Galatians 5.3, I testify to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. You see, getting circumcised was the first thing that the law told a man to do. But when you did it, it obligated you to do the rest of the law. And what did Paul say about the law in Romans 6.15? We're not under the law, we're under grace. And after the Apostle Paul told those leaders that his new Gentile converts were not under the law, well, the leaders called a council meeting, as you see in verse 6 back in your Bible. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. Now, this meeting has come to be known as the Jerusalem Council. And the reason the Lord respected their authority enough to send Paul to get their stamp of approval on his message is because it was the Lord himself who gave the twelve apostles their authority when he said in Matthew 18, 18-20, Whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And... Whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He was telling them, whatever you guys decide down there, we'll agree with up in heaven. He was giving them the power and the authority to make decisions about God's work after he ascended up into heaven and was gone. And listen. The Lord would not have given them that authority and then expected Paul to ignore that authority and go on preaching grace without their stamp of approval. And that approval was not going to be easy to come by, as you see in verse 7 back in your Bible. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us 
that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now you know what he's talking about there. He's reminding them that God sent him to preach to a Gentile back in Acts chapter 10. A Gentile named who? Cornelius. Cornelius. And I don't know if you ever thought about what God did there, but on the surface, it didn't seem to make a lot of sense. I mean, God sent Peter to the Jews in Acts chapters 1 to 8, right? Then he sent Paul to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 9. So, the, so, so then why would God send Peter to one single Gentile in chapter 10 and then never send him to any other Gentiles? Well, the answer is that God was paving the way for Paul's ministry among the Gentiles by sending Peter to a Gentile to, well, it's that expression we use, break the ice. <laughs> I mean, think it through. Who better to introduce God's new main apostle than his old main apostle? And if sending one man to pave the way for another man sounds familiar, it's because what, it's what God did for his own son. Before God sent his son to the Jews... He sent John the Baptist, didn't he? Look what it says in Matthew 3, verses 1 and 3. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, the land of Israel. For this is he, John, that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness... Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And listen, John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. It says that in Luke 16, 16. The, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached. The Old Testament law was God's old program for the Jews. And the kingdom was God's new program for the Jews. So, who better to introduce the first of the New Testament prophets than the last of the Old Testament prophets? Did you know the Lord was a prophet, don't you? If not, look what it says in John 6. And verse 14, Then those men, when they had seen the miracle Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. And they were talking about the one Moses said would come into the world back in Deuteronomy 18, talking about the Lord. Well, I got a question for you. If the Son of God needed a man to pave the way for you, don't you think that maybe Paul could use a guy like Peter to pave the way for him? Sure. But if you know the story, you know that 
God didn't just use John the Baptist to pave the way for the Lord. He also used the Holy Spirit. As you see when Matthew tells us a little bit more about John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 13 and 16. Then cometh Jesus unto John to be baptized of him. And when he was baptized, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon the Lord Jesus. Now, if you want to talk about paving the way for somebody... We're talking real bulldozer type of paving there. I mean, that had to be an astonishing sight. I mean, think about it, Mary. If the folks in Bowler were to see the Holy Spirit descend on Paul like a dove, you think maybe they'd roll out the red carpet for him? Yeah, I, I think so. And God also used the Holy Spirit to introduce the Apostle Paul and pave the way for him, as we see as we read on in our Bible now in verse 8. And God, which knoweth the hearts, still talking about what happened when Peter preached to Cornelius, God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, him and his family, giving them the Holy Ghost even as he did unto us. Now, now, if you know that story, you know the Holy Spirit didn't descend on Cornelius like a dove. Instead, Peter preached to Cornelius and his family, and then it says in Acts 10, 44 to 46, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost, for they heard them speak with tongues, just like they did at Pentecost. Now, if you don't think that the Spirit causing men to speak in tongues was as big a bulldozer as when the Spirit fell on the Lord like a dove, I can assure you it was. Because it says there in Acts 10 that they were astonished when those guys started speaking in tongues. Because that meant God had done something to those Gentiles. Something we read about back in your Bible now in verse 9 where Peter said that when that happened, when God gave them the gift of tongues, gave them the Spirit, He put no difference between us and them, between us Jews and them Gentiles, purifying their hearts by faith. When the Spirit gave the Gentiles the same spiritual gift of tongues that He gave them at Pentecost, the Jews, that was God's way of saying there was no longer any difference between Jews and Gentiles. That's why those Jews were so astonished. You see, back in the Old Testament, God made a humongous difference between Jews and Gentiles. Look what God said in Leviticus 20, verses 20, uh, verse 26, I should say. 
I, the Lord, he says to Israel, have severed you from other people, other nations, that ye should be mine. That Listen, that's why Balaam said what he said in Numbers 23.9, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned with the nations, the Gentiles. The, as far as God was concerned, the Jews were in a class by themselves, uh, the way we would phrase it. And that's the way things were for the next 1,500 years. Until the Spirit gave those Gentiles the same gift that He gave the Jews. Because that happened around the time Paul was getting saved. And when the Spirit did that, Peter knew, as it says in verse 9, that God had purified their hearts by faith. Now don't get confused there. Because even Jews are saved by faith. Men have always been saved by faith, right? What's Hebrews 11.6 say? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Whatever God told men to believe to be saved, they had to believe it. And throughout the Old Testament, they had to believe God when He said they had to be circumcised and keep the law to be saved. But God purified the hearts of these Gentiles by faith without circumcision in the law. That's what Peter meant in verse 9 when he said he purified their hearts by faith. He meant that God purified their hearts by faith alone. And God's been doing that ever since. And He paved the way to do it through Paul by doing it first through Peter. And here's the kicker. When Peter reminded the council of his experience there with Cornelius, he was reminding them that this issue had already been settled. Because after Cornelius got saved by faith alone and the Jews heard about it, they called Peter out on the carpet about it, as you see in your next reference. Remember what happened? Peter goes to Cornelius in Acts 10. Look what happens in Acts chapter 11, beginning in the very first verse. The apostles heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God from Peter. So when Peter was come to Jerusalem, they contended with him. But Peter rehearsed the matter, saying, God gave them the like gift as he did unto us, the gift of tongues. And when those leaders heard these things, they glorified God, saying, Well, I guess then also to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance unto life. Back in Acts 11, the apostles had already met with Peter to decide if Gentiles could be saved without circumcision in the law. And when they heard Peter say, the same thing he's saying here, give them the same proof. When they heard Peter say God gave them the same gifts that he gave us at Pentecost, they recognized that God had purified their hearts without circumcision in the law. And in bringing that up here, 
Peter was saying, you leaders have already said that Gentiles don't need to be circumcised and be saved. So why are you opening up that can of worms all over again? And that was a pretty good argument, don't you think? I mean, an argument like that, that would hold up in court. But Peter didn't rest his case with that argument. He went on to press his point in, back in your Bible now. He pressed his point in verse 10 by asking him a question. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke on the neck of these new Gentile disciples, a yoke which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? And he's talking about the yoke of the law. Later on, Paul told the saved Gentiles in Galatians 5, verses 1 and 3, Be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage, because every man that circumcises a debtor to do the whole law like we saw. He was telling them, Don't put on the yoke of the law by getting circumcised, the first thing that the law tells you to do. Because if you do, you got to do all the rest of the stuff the law says to do. And the problem with that is, that meant doing everything the law said perfectly every day of your life and never sinning one time. Paul makes that clear in Galatians 3, doesn't he? Galatians 3.10 says, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things written in the book of the law to do them. And you've heard me say many times, that means God's saying He wants you to do 100% of the things in the law, 100% of the time, and never sin once. Well, that's why James said in James 2.10 and 11, Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all the law. For he that said don't commit adultery also said don't kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. Do you mean to tell me if I go 70 years of my life after I get bored without sinning a single sin, then I sin one time that God's going to condemn me? Well, let me ask you this. If you go 70 years of life without killing anybody, and then you snap and suddenly kill some Packer fan who just Lambo leaped into your lap... <laughs> Do you think the judge is going to let you slide and say, well, he never killed anybody before, so a Chicago judge might if he hears it's a Packer fan, but uh, before, even, the, even the standards of human law won't let you get away with that. So why would you be surprised that God's standards are as high as man's standards? Now, does that mean that nobody under the law was ever saved? Well, of course not. Men like Abraham and David were saved. But they got saved by offering a sacrifice when they realized they couldn't keep the law 100% of the time. But here in this passage, 
A sacrifice had already been offered for these Gentiles, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. So why make them get circumcised and try to keep the law? Verse 10 says to do that would be to tempt God. And you know what that word tempt means in the Bible. It means to test or to try. And we see that best by comparing what it says in Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. God did tempt Abraham and said, Take now thy son and offer him for a burnt offering. Now you compare that to what Hebrews eleven seventeen says about what happened there. Abraham, when he was tempted, is that what it says? No, when he was tried, offered up his son. God tested or tried Abraham's faith there, and it would try God's patience here to ask those Gentiles to get circumcised after he proved by his Holy Ghost they didn't need to be circumcised. And after Peter said all that, then he delivered the dagger. (laughs) Do you know what the dagger is in basketball? Back when the Bulls were in a close game, Michael Jordan would get the ball naturally, and he'd make a shot that would make it impossible for the other team to catch up and win. And they call that the dagger. Well, Peter delivered the dagger in the last verse of our text here in verse 11. There he makes it impossible for the Jews to win the argument when he said in verse 11, But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we Jews will be saved even as they Gentiles. Peter's saying, you guys are are trying to make the Gentiles get saved like we Jews by by circumcision in the law. But we Jews are going to be saved like those Gentiles by grace. Now that's a dagger. (laughs) I mean, Peter's sticking it in and twisting it. But what does he mean by that? Well, whatever he meant, you'll notice in verse 11, Peter reminds those Jews that it was something they already believed. He says, we believe. We already believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ we'll be saved like they will. Hey folks, they already believed they were saved by a sacrifice and not by the circumcision and the law. But if they were already saved, why does Peter say, we shall be saved. Well, it's because their salvation worked the same way yours does. You got saved when the moment you believed, right? But if that's true, how come Paul says in Romans 13, 11, now is our salvation nearer than when we believed? Well, you know he's talking about the rapture there, the completion of our salvation. Right now, you're just saved from the penalty of sin and hell. But in that day, you're going to be saved from the presence of sin in your life and everybody else's sin too. Amen? And someday, God is going to complete Peter's salvation 
and the salvation of all those other kingdom saints by saying to God what Hosea predicted they would say in Hosea 14, verses 1 to 4. O Israel, God told Israel, take with you words and turn to the Lord and say unto him, take away all iniquity, make us as sinless as our hearts are. Make our lives as purified as our hearts. Take away all iniquity and receive us. What's that next word? Graciously. I'll heal their back. If they do that, when God hears them say that, He's, I'll heal their backsliding and I will love them freely. And when saved Jews say that to God, God is going to save them from the presence of sin in the kingdom. And when he does, it's going to be graciously. That's what that word freely means, graciously. And if you're glad that you're saved freely by God's grace, say amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in that truth that we're saved freely by your grace. But now we're, we're looking into the, to how it came to pass. We're looking into the battle that the Apostle Paul bravely and boldly fought to get the stamp of approval from your people on that blessed truth of being saved freely by your grace. We thank you for his faithfulness. May it inspire in faithfulness on our own part. We pray it in the Savior's name. Amen.